listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. On Facebook, sometimes people don't know this. There's an other mailbox. And I send a lot of blind queries to people. And so a lot of times people I'm not friends with never get my emails. And I understand that because I've gotten stuff like that. But I was so surprised. I sent my um, the guest an email two and a half years ago. And to me, it's always like it's always like a present when someone gets it and they get back to you. And my guest is Pat McDonald. And it was so cool because out of nowhere, I'm sitting around and I was sort of in a guest booking slump. And I get that. And it's Pat and I was all excited. And my guest is Pat McDonald. How you doing, Pat? Hey, hey. doing good. Great to meet you. Bye. Yeah, it, it's funny. You know, we've been talking and going back and forth. It's so funny when, you know, when I meet guests who I really only know them, I mean, looking at them from videos. Because, you know, most times you don't see people, you see pictures. So when I get to see a person in real life, and it's great because you have a great setup there, it's just, it's a cool thing because me... Being a big, you know, music junkie, when I meet people that I'm fans of their work, it's always a great thing. Well, I'm I'm blown away that you've done so many of these. You must it must be like just kind of like breathing to you. Well, it, it's it's probably you know what it, it's probably like songwriting to you. You know, even song you're a songwriter, so for you, you can sit down. If you ask me to write a song. I'm not making any sense. I can't, I can't sit there. I can't put, I mean, I can write, like I can write a short story, but I'm musically, I, I'm not musically inclined. But for you, when you see, you've written so many songs. See, that's for me when it's an interview. I get in the gear, just probably like you do. Like, what is, what is your songwriting style? I mean, what do you sit down and just say, I have to write something or does something pop in your head or how do you go about that? You know, it seems like because it's been so long, so many decades of it since the like the mostly like the early 70s till now. Um, it's it hasn't changed much, but the thing that ha has stayed the same is the fact that I really don't have any one particular system or uh, method. You know, it's like some you know words first, music first. It's it's all, it's everything, you know, it's like sometimes, sometimes ideas, sometimes riffs on guitar, sometimes magically just some lyrics and a melody will come at the same time. Uh, and that's, you know, um, I sit down, you know, usually oftentimes, like I used to write in the early days, I would need to. I would I would just do it because I wanted to learn how to write songs. I just wanted to write songs. I needed something to play. I needed something to play for people on a gig, you know, because I didn't I didn't I hardly ever have had a regular job. So this was always how I made my living. So uh, I wanted to play original music for a living, um, you know, and that was really hard at first, but. Um, so I was writing so many songs and so many shitty songs. And, uh, but later on, as, as it kind of went, then after, after Timbuk3 thing happened and we started, you know, getting uh, time, you know, getting kind of paid to sit and write songs for the next album, 
um, then I was writing songs for albums at that point. And then later on, it's kind of like, since then it's kind of evolved into the, the, the point where I, I, I only can write songs if, I, if there's something I need to say or I really want to say in a song or some kind of music I really feel compelled to play. Um, and it does, it's, not, it's, it's no longer kind of confined to a genre that I'm trying to focus on or anything. It's more all over the map. But it usually is something that I want to say that I, that I feel um, is necessary because I need, I need to need to write or else there's so many other things you can do be distracted with you know now you said you know before when earlier you you would write a shitty song you know and and, you know would you know and even to this point like if you sit there and you start writing a song and when you have the idea let's say it strikes you and you sit down and you're like this is going to be a masterpiece and then you get a little through it and you go oh man you know what i don't like this does that happen to you or do you pretty much now because you've done it for so long know the fact that when you sit down and decide to to play it all out, get it going, you know it's going to be good. I don't... I don't think I've ever thought, oh, this is going to be a masterpiece. Because to me, like, a masterpiece would be extremely ambitious kind of song. And um, and I've always tried to reduce everything down to the simplest um, way to say it. Way to say the you know, get the idea in a song, in a short song. I'm all, I'm all about the three-minute song, you know. Um, it's always been that way. I can almost, if you told me, you know, okay, I'm going to, we're going to stop, and you can't look at a clock, tell me when three minutes is up, I could probably do it, you know. But, um, but, um, the idea of needing, needing to do it, uh, but it's not always something that that you want to say particular. It might be something that some kind of musical thing you just want to do. And then then it becomes kind of the cart before the horse because the music is is the is the most important thing, and um, and you and and it pulls pulls the words out of your head. You know the music does. It, it's a little. Um, and and so you sing gibberish for a while, and then the Rorschach words come come pouring out, you know, and and uh, and you, you have to figure out what it means at some point or what you're tra- what you're talking about, and then to finish the song, you kind of wrap it up with what what you think the song was trying to be about, you know, and and sometimes it just sounds very thought out, but. That's kind of like the work you do later, you know. You do the tying together as you go. At first, it's just like spew it out there, you know. Now, now you said you've really never had another job besides guitar and playing and singing. When did you, what were you like as a kid? Was there any influences that really changed you? Or when did you know you wanted to be a musician? Um... When I was a little kid, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an artist or a scientist. You know, like I wanted to be a scientist. I really liked how all those 
speakers with all those colorful fluids look, you know, boiling and and flowing through these tubes, and um, uh, and that kind of appealed to me. Just the idea of being a mad scientist, you know, that was my earliest aspiration was to be a mad scientist, and then um, uh, then then I, you know, started drawing pictures of things I, I like I remember drawing a picture of a, a machine that I thought of when I was a little tiny kid and it was a fanciful machine it didn't do any it wouldn't work it required magic in order to power this little machine you know but uh, but I uh, I drew it and and that was a lot of my early drawings were I remember Rube Goldberg was around at the time I think I might have I really liked his machines, his drawings, Rube Goldberg. And, um, uh, and so I, I kind of went into art, you know, I didn't, that was before I went to music, I was drawing a lot, you know. Um, so, so after a while, though, my mom had a guitar, and she played, played guitar, and, and I started getting a feeling like I wanted to try that and she taught me like three chords maybe four maybe she knew about four chords she knew four chords exactly and um, um, so yeah that I learned to play play a little bit from her and then but that was before the Beatles came out you know and then of course the Beatles seemed like after that happened everybody wanted to be a musician now, did you did you see the Beatles on Sullivan? Um, yeah, I saw the very first one. Yep. So, what was that like as a kid? Because I always wonder. You know, we sit there. You know, you remember TV points and seeing different things on TV. And for me, I'm a lot of the MTV generation, so that's what turned me on to a lot of music that I didn't know. What was it like for you? I mean, did it change? Did it just change your view on music? And did it really solidify that you wanted to do that? You know, before even the Ed Sullivan broadcast, I remember there was a department store called Prangies in Green Bay, and they were escalators in Prangies, and we'd go ride the escalators. And I think on the third floor, I think it was, there was a music shop. And um, I remember seeing the posters. I I remember riding the Ellis escalator, and there was a poster facing you as you're kind of going up or down the escalator and uh and the, it was the beatles and it, at first it was like these aliens they were these they no one looked like that in green bay wisconsin and um and and it was like they seemed like the coolest people in the world and uh in that in that poster whatever it was and then um uh i didn't have money to buy records but uh maybe the record was for sale at that moment in the store but I did see the show before I ever owned a Beatles album my aunts owned Beatles albums they were the first ones to uh, to have records like I, I just my aunt Sherry I, she had the Beatles records and that's where I heard the album the first Beatles album and then later she had Blonde on Blonde, the Dylan album, uh, and and she played that for me, and that's what completely 
blew me away and got me into wanting to be a songwriter at that point. But now, did um, you did you want to did you want to? I mean, because you're younger, did you want to emulate Dylan? I mean, what, what was it? What was it that? What was it that? When you heard him, was it his lyrics or what made him you that you said I want to be a songwriter? What was weird was um, before before that, before Dylan came along or before I had ever heard of him, me and this friend in class at St. Jude High St. Jude's grade school in Green Bay, we were probably in like sixth grade or seventh grade, and um, we uh, used to pass each other. We were into Lewis Carroll. We were into his his uh, writing, The Jabberwock. I think this kid turned me on to Lewis Carroll and The Jabberwock and the nonsense lyrics. And so, so I liked. We, he and I had this little two-person club, writing club, and we'd write nonsense lyrics for each other. And <coughs> nonsense poems, I guess, not lyrics. They weren't intended for songs or anything. I wasn't playing music at that time. But then later Dylan came out and to me being so inexperienced with life, I had no idea what he was singing about, you know. And he did. He had a lot of stream of consciousness stuff, playful stream of consciousness. But to me it just sounded a lot like the the Jabberwock, you know. It sounded like like nonsense lyrics um so uh um so i i liked it and i i took i kind of came upon it naturally i i I was able to emulate that a little bit but it was just pure nonsense my first lyric i remember um it meant nothing you know uh and it, that was my first kind of Dylan-esque attempt when I was, you know, 14. Um, yeah. So so when did you sit there and start getting serious and trying to get gigs together? And, and what was the scene like in Green Bay at that time? Was there, was there a, a vibrant music scene or was it something that you had to travel around? I mean, how did, how did you start getting work? I assume that Green Bay was like a lot of places at the time. Like, it just seemed like this, the, it was exploding in Green Bay. Kids wanting guitars and wanting to form bands, you know. And, and I'm, I'm sure it was like that everywhere. But um, um, the the scene was that, you know, you, you weren't playing in bars because I was... Uh, 13 when I first started playing in a band and, and um, uh, I didn't even have a proper electric guitar I didn't, I didn't I lusted after one I really wanted one but but what I had was a, a little a, like a little mini acoustic um, kind of like a f-hole guitar you know one of those one of those kind of like a uh, it had f holes. It was it was beat up. It was it was old and it was used. I was it was probably given to me by you know I don't know my grandpa or something. Uh, and uh, I refinished it and put an electric pickup on it. And um, 
And I, uh, that was my first guitar, and I was like 13 years old, but my grandpa was an electronics genius, and he, he, ran the, he, he, he was the chief engineer for the local TV station, and, um, and he was always doing stuff in his basement, so he made me a, my first amp out of an old tube radio. And, um, but most of the kids could afford, their parents could buy them amps and guitars, little amps, you know, cheap guitars, Japanese mostly, you know, um, the Sears Silvertone guitars with the speaker in the, in the guitar case. People have talked about those, yeah. I suppose, yeah. And um, so, yeah, the, I remember my friend Mark uh, came to school with one of those one day, and, and it was like, he might as well have brought in a flying car, you know, because it was that amazing, you know, uh, to see. And he played a little something, probably a, a Ventures riff or something for the class, and we all went crazy uh, over it. But the first gigs that I, that we were doing were like, I remember the first gig I ever did was a outdoor barbecue party, um, a block party. Um, somebody hired us. I can't even remember if it was on the block where I lived or somewhere farther away, but we got paid to do it. Like, I don't know, maybe $10 or something to split, you know? Uh, it was a three-piece band. Uh, this was right out of eighth grade. I was 13. I turned 14 later that summer. But uh, but I remember, like, the, the lead guitar player, and I was I was – the rhythm guitar player, because all I did is strum chords. And, uh, but the lead guitar player came from Vincennes, Indiana, and he had an accent, you know, like a, a kind of a twang, you know, southern twang. Uh, and, um, and he was kind of unusual at the school, and he was cool. He was, me, and, me and him were friends, and, uh, and he wanted to do this band, playing Rolling Stones covers. He just wanted to do Stones, you know, nothing else. And um, half of the songs we did were Stones, and then half were other stuff. But uh, his brother, his little brother, who was 10 years old, played drums. Um, and uh, turns out later I found out that the 10-year-old kid who was practicing in our basement, in you know, my band, was doing strange um, uh, impro inappropriate aggressions on my little sister at that time, you know. And it was a strange little little band. Um, but, but we were kind of typical, I think, at that time. Although our, our PA system was, a, was one of those round cone speakers like they, had, like they used in the... Uh, uh, park and recreation department as the, yeah. you know, yeah, it was like, like one of those things connected to a bogan amp where the tubes stick out of the top of it, a little, little, little amplifier. And, uh, so our, our equipment was really crude. The lead, the guitar player, he had an amp and he had a, a nice electric guitar, or, you know, cheap electric guitar, whatever. But, uh, yeah, it was, um, very ragtag, but you know, like we were only thirteen, so I mean, um, uh, now 
when did you start really pursuing it? When did you, you know, you're 13, but then as you're getting older, when do you really start pursuing, you know, a career? And what do you, how do you go about it? I mean, you know, when you get out of high school or, or was it, were you 20? Yeah. Or how did that happen? Because, you know, you eventually, you know, you went on, you got record deals, but you had to get there a certain way. How did you get there? Yeah, it was just kind of one step after the next. I think once I once I did music, I really didn't want to do anything else. Um, I just figured that was what I would do with my life. And, you know, I was 13, and at that time I was really ambitious, I guess, uh, or something, because by the time I went to ninth into ninth grade, I was playing in my third band. So that one summer I was... I went from one band to another band to then a third band. And, um, uh, and so I was kind of going along at a clip and went from playing Stones covers to playing within the second band I joined just because they had a lot of great equipment. And then I thought they were good and they had good equipment, but they only wanted to do, they wanted to do Beatles songs and even Monkeys covers. And, and so I quit them and joined this other band that did, um, uh, R&B so uh, when, when when I went into Franklin Junior High in Green Bay I was playing Sam and Dave you know and uh, and Wilson Pickett and all those people all that Motown stuff and you know we were uh, so we were 14 and we were you know playing kind of kind of the typical music that kids played at that time but but heavily heavily uh, based on the R&B stuff. Now, when did you start playing originals? When did when did that come in? When I mean, this whole time you're playing like the Stones and the Beatles and then Sam and Dave, were you writing at the time or were you just learning your craft, so we said? Yeah, I was that summer, you know, we're still that one summer, um I was just playing and trying to learn how to play, trying to sing. Um uh and but but the third band, that third band where we were doing R&B stuff, uh, I did present one, I remember one song I presented to the band wanting to play it. And it was a song, it was in that nonsense lyric category. It was called Impractical Solid White Zebra. Really dumb. (laughs) You know, and the words were just, you know, nonsense, but... um, I think the the title was Impractical Solid White Zebra, and I think the the hook of the lyric in the song with melody to it, it was Impracticality is a Solid White Zebra, which was really, I look back, why am I even admitting to this, you know, why, why am I even telling you this, this is, but that was when I was 14, and that's the band, song I, and I think the band, we did the song, we worked it up, but, um, but we weren't playing long gigs, you know. We were playing like, band, you know, battle of the band contests and stuff. And so we probably hardly played it alive, you know. Originals. It was always a fight getting originals into the bands I was playing in, and it was my ambition way back then was really to eventually be the leader of the band, have my own band, you know, just for the reason of being able to play 
what I wanted to, the songs I wanted to play. You know, it was the only way. My songwriting wasn't really good enough to be to compete with the songs that would be popular in the places we were playing. So, so you know, finally, uh, after a while, I just just started doing bands. Um, well, I got got involved in in a group of people that were dealing drugs and stuff, and we were they were political activists. This was in the early days of like 1970 Madison. I moved down to Madison in 1970, and there was a lot of activists down there. Uh, there was, uh, well, <laughs> somehow I managed to naturally fall in with the drug dealers and um, ended up going to jail for like uh, 30 days on three felonies. Um, and uh, I was in the Dane County Jail. I got out, of, as soon as I got out of jail, I decided that no longer would I make my living doing anything else but music. You know, so I was like 18 then, turning 18 that summer um, of 1970. Mm -hmm. And um, so to answer your question of earlier, basically the idea was get out of jail, start a band. Uh, you know, put, uh, put up the, the, the two by five cards all over town. Um, is my mic distorting? No, it's fine. Okay. Put up the two by five cards and met this guy, uh, Dave McSpadden, and the two of us put this little band together. We got a third person, and uh, we played country music, a lot of country stuff. I was writing country songs, trying to write country songs at that point in time. So you're playing, you're you're playing, and you're playing. Now, eventually, Timbuk. Three happens. How did that happen? Because you're playing country. I mean, you've you've been in jail. You start playing. You're 13. You're out. You're doing this. You're you're you know what you're going to do. You're going to hone your craft. But you weren't you weren't real young when you had your first big hit. But how did Timbuk Three come together? Well, I was in Madison. Uh, Madison, from you know, from all through the 70s. Uh, you know, different bands in Madison, playing in different bands. Finally got my own band. It was called Pat McDonald and the Essentials. And um, there wasn't a band called the Essentials back then. Eventually there was, though, not long after that. There, there was another band called the Essentials. But uh, um, <clears throat> so, yeah, we went through a million people in the Essentials, but it you know, kept the name up until a certain point. And I had, during, well, right before that period, I had met this this girl, Barbara, who um, was living in Madison. She was going to go to school, finish her degree, or finish her college there. She had lived in Texas before that. And um, she... She came to a gig. I was playing solo. You know, I always played solo on the side. I played in bands and then played solo, and it was different repertoire usually. I'd play certain songs solo, certain with the band. You know, but um, Barbara came to this gig, and she was the loudest, most demonstrative audience member, you know? And uh, 
So I talked to her after the show, and um, and 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 we eventually got together and went out. Um, didn't happen right away, but you know, I was I was really obsessed at that time with writing and playing. I was just I was living in a little room in the basement of this house, and they let me live there for free. Uh, and uh, it was like a soundproof room that somebody had built as a sonic, like a, um, what do you call it, um, primal scream room? Primal scream room. Yeah, it was a perfect, perfect acoustics for playing music late at night because nobody living in the house could hear me. And um, so, and I always played late at night, so it was great. It was perfect, and it was free. And Barbara would come there. And uh, eventually, you know, and she'd just sit there and listen to me writing songs and stuff. She'd sit there um, hang and just hang out, you know, and I'd be writing these songs. And, um, you know, you would think she'd have been bored, but she, she secretly, she was just like learning it, learning how to do it, you know, watching me. And uh, eventually... Uh, she started playing solo gigs. She she started writing songs again. She she hadn't written any songs. She had done songs though. She had she had won a, uh, a songwriter like a, not a songwriter uh, just a talent contest in San Antonio on the Riverwalk. You know when she was a teenager, and um, that was the kind of thing she did. And she was playing covers like Leonard Cohen and stuff. And uh. So anyway, I lost my, I was playing, she used to go to my, all my gigs with me. Um, we were just never apart, it seemed like. And um, she went to all my gigs. Uh, one night I uh, lost my voice. I had complete laryngitis. I couldn't sing at all. I couldn't even talk. Um, hardly. But she... Uh, she got up and sang all my songs. She knew all the words by that time. And and I just played and she sang. And she saved my gig. And after that, that wasn't, we didn't like immediately start that band. You know, we didn't immediately start Timbuk3. Uh, but it wasn't long after that. Um, she, she started her own band. Um, and then uh, um, eventually she quit her band and joined mine. And um, that was, you know, probably around 82, 81, 82, something like that. Um, and she, uh, she joined the Essentials, you know, and uh, she started on violin. She just decided she wanted to play violin and picked it up and like within two months she was playing lead lead violin in my band because the lead guitar player quit and I needed a lead instrument. And she played funky, crazy, you know, like choppy, uh, kind of, she didn't play violin, she played fiddle and it was very raw and it was, you know, like punk fiddle and she, she, uh, um, she had a good 
vibe with it, good feel, even though, you know, it wasn't ornate, it wasn't fancy at all. But it, it added, I played a pretty good, like, laid down a bed of rhythm guitar, and it was all rhythm-oriented stuff. And, um, uh, and so all she had to do is play something syncopated on top of it or something, you know what I mean? Like a counter rhythm or something. So you, know? so you guys are playing together. Now, how do you get the record deal? How do you how do you get that first record deal? Because did you have to stay in Madison or how does it go? Because you hear people going to L.A., you hear people going to New York. How did you get the first record deal? Because also your sound wasn't. 80s was very new wave. Your sound was earthier. Your sound was you know more real. I mean, so that some of the record companies must must have thought, well, wait, how are we going to market them? How did this all happen? Because then you have this giant hit. I mean, how did that happen? It was it was a real great story. I mean, it's kind of where things get exciting because we we were playing together in the Essentials and we uh, we were going through drummers like crazy and and um, uh, you know one day it's like we had this moment where you know we were playing with a band. She had she was pregnant. She, she, uh, we were playing in this band, playing with this band. They joined the Essentials. They were playing my stuff, but, but, uh, they also had their own band on the side. One day they quit. They decided they wanted to just pursue their own thing and left Barbara and I, uh, with, you know, nothing. But we, uh, we had the songs though. And so we bought a, big old boom box, you know, um, it was Father's Day present, Barbara bought it, the idea was to just have this, that I would, I would learn to, I would play, the learn to play the bass parts for all these songs, um, and program some drum tracks for all the songs, and so all I needed was drums and bass, and so I spent like a, the summer in Madison, borrowing a four-track player, Borrowing a bass, borrowing a drum machine, those three things. If I could go get those three things all at once, um, then I could crank out some rhythm tracks, you know. So I did a bunch of those uh, sessions where I would spend, you know, 24-7 with all this borrowed gear making these rhythm tracks to all, all my songs. And um, and we decided we were going to be with the boombox playing it through a boombox we we could be mobile we could play on the street so the idea was um maybe we'd we'd move somewhere we we're gonna get out of madison it was win winter time when winter time was coming i i had just decided i was never i was never going to spend another winter in madison you know so we we thought new orleans or maybe austin we it was the two possibilities um while the weather was still nice, we went out to New York City and we did some busking out there. And, um, you know, we met some famous people who happened by on the street, you know, like, uh, uh, <laughs> and one of the, one, one musician, uh, you know, Jim Phantom, the bass player yeah. from uh, Stray Cats, yeah, right? Yeah, Jim, yeah. Yeah, he stopped by and, and, and listened for a while and said he dug it and stuff. We, we were 
you know, had the boombox on the street. She was playing mostly violin, mostly fiddle, and I was playing acoustic guitar, and we were singing harmonies. And uh, I don't know if it was him or somebody else in that little group that was on the corner um, invited us to come and do the uh, the open mic at CBGB's. So we went and did the open mic at CBGB's from the street. That was... That was in um, the summer of 1984. And then uh, we did a bunch of gigs in bars in like maybe in northern Wisconsin. Uh, Madison, one or two. Uh, then we had a bunch of gigs and I remember nobody wanted to call us Timbuk3. I mean, at least this one place, the place that paid the most he still booked us. He liked us when we were Pat McDonald and Barbara Coyman. And, um, and so he, re- he didn't bill us as Timbuk3, even though that's what we wanted to be billed as at that time. So that was, that was kind of weird because uh, we're, it was just our final days up north. And then we moved to, to Madison. And um, nine months later we had a record deal, you know? Um, but but those nine months, it was really interesting because I don't know if you know a guy named Blaze Foley or if you've ever heard of him. Towns Van Zandt. Um, yeah. They were kind of buddies, Blaze and Towns. And Blaze was a tragic kind of character, but he, he now is a legendary folk hero of sorts, but he's from the Matt, from the Austin scene. And he was the first person who ever supported us in in Austin. Um, he he had this little following of like down and outers, basically, and and you know hippie bikers, down and outers, you know, like people who just really at the street street level of things. He played the Austin Outhouse, and we got a gig there. He booked us there. I mean, he got us a gig there, and he he recruited our audience, and he he uh, kind of it was things like that that kind of got us going at when we first got to Austin, and um, we played on the street once, and we got request for Jerry Jeff Walker from a tourist on Sixth Street, so so we were done with playing on the street. We played at Maggie May's a bar there. We got we actually got in the press from playing Maggie Mays, which was like almost like, you know, a gift from the gods at that time for us being new to Madison, new to Austin. Uh, I keep saying Madison when I mean Austin because Austin and Madison are really similar. Right. If you, yeah. Um, it was not too much of a shock in terms of moving to Austin because it was a college town that had a Capitol Dome and uh, lots of familiarity there. But and Barbara was from Texas. She was spent most of her youth in Texas, so she she was didn't feel out of home, out of place or anything. Um, but our music wasn't accepted in Austin at first. We were we were pretty. Um, much we fell in the crack. Like on one hand, there was Blaze Foley and that whole uh, roots, you know, 
outlaw biker songwriter kind of vibe, you know, like the Towns Van Zandt, the, uh, um, you know, uh, Merle Haggard and, and Willie Nelson did a cover of one of Blaze's songs. Uh, that was his greatest moment in his life. He died um, tragically. I'll tell you later, but um, uh, so so Blaze. We had Blaze and his crowd on one hand. Then on the other side of things, we had this guy, Guy Juke, who was a poster artist, and and so he was like on the extreme kind of. He also played with a tape machine, but he had a four track and his band kind of mimed. They weren't necessarily even, they didn't even have their instruments turned up. They mostly relied on the tape, but they were kind of a very much of an art group, an art band, you know, an art rock band that, that um, wasn't popular in the bars, but they got, they played at parties and stuff. Uh, and they were called Blackie White and the Halftones. And um, yeah, J- Guy Juke, Blackie White, he was my buddy, and we, you know, um, we played a couple gigs together. But one of them happened to be a party for um, for the local paper, for the Austin Chronicle. So we got a little bit of notoriety there, but then it was still nobody really. Everybody thought, oh, it's good songs and cool style of music, but. They got to get rid of that boombox, you know. Uh, they got to get a real band, because in Austin, you know, like we did. On one hand, there was this scene that was this this kind of indie rock scene that was also bubbling up really strong in Austin at that time. And even though we played gigs with some of the bands in that scene. Uh, Um, we weren't really considered to be anywhere near the top of that scene. You know, we were kind of like, we didn't exactly fit. And uh, at one time, uh, you know, we were in a, we were auditioning to play a gig in a, in a bar in Austin. And this was at a time we were playing mostly in Fort Worth. Um, We drove up a lot to Fort Worth to play our gigs. That's where we made our money in Fort Worth. Um, I don't know why. I think Austin had enough cool bands and uh, Fort Worth didn't, <laughs> maybe, you know. Uh, but we, we made our first $500 night in Fort Worth, you know. We were pretty blown away by that. And um, uh, But anyway, this scene, we weren't really, ex- you know, accepted into the cool scene. Um, we were a little too out there with because it was the boom box and you know we didn't live we hadn't lived there long and we weren't kind of settled in um do you ever heard of daniel johnston no okay they, they made a movie about him uh uh and he uh he was a character and a really influential songwriter there was Blaze Foley on one side who played to the Down and Outers and then there was Daniel Johnston who also played solo and he was like the, a darling of the indie scene there because he was he, he was he was maybe you'd say he wasn't quite right in the head you know but but he was a beautiful sweet person but he did have his demons and 
you know, he actually crashed a plane or, uh, or tried to crash a plane when his dad was flying it. And, you know, he, he's had some weird times in his life, but anyway, he's still extremely, uh, famous among a lot of young people, a lot of youngish people and even people my age, people kind of on the outskirts of, of pop scene. But, um, uh, so we were somewhere between Daniel Johnson, Black and White and the Halftones and Blaze Foley, you know, but we weren't in any scene really. But then this, then, then skip to, um, IRS records. Remember IRS records? Um, they had a show. You must have seen the Cutting Edge show. Yeah. On MTV. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So the big news on the street was the Cutting Edge show was coming to town, and they were going to do a special episode on the Austin music scene. And you know, a lot of people who who are, don't know about the Cutting Edge show don't know that it it was like the holy grail if you could play on that show you were the coolest of the cool you know like uh you know that there was 120 minutes on mtv and that that basically showcased all the latest successful things that the up-and-comers but the cutting edge show played stuff that was outside the mainstream of 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 up and comers, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of hardcore punk stuff and, you know, you know this, but, um, but so the cutting edge was kind of like the, the artiest thing on MTV. Maybe you've, you would agree. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was different. I mean, it was, it was MTV was in a different stage then. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, and so everybody was so thrilled that that that, that show was going to be cut in Austin. Everybody wanted to be on the show. And um, we didn't think we could get on it because we weren't one of the, what do you call, uh, buzz bands at that time. We weren't, you know, there. Uh, but... There's this guy, uh, Ed Gwynn, who saw, you know, he came to see us one night and he wanted to record us. He had, a, he owned a studio and he was the first black guy in the Texas, uh, the University of Texas band, UT Austin. He was the first black guy they allowed in the band and he had to fight to get there, actually. Um, he's a good musician and... Um, and uh, he played the synclavier. You know that instrument? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was a uh, he was into electronic music and um, really into it. A really great character, great guy. Um, owned the studio, um, Lone Star Studios. It was called. And um, he was the guy who ever seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre too? Yep. Or, or, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He, he was in both movies. He he played. He was the trucker at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 
uh, he was a trucker that saved the girl at the end, very end. You know, the last girl standing, right? Um, or running down the highway or whatever. And, and, she, and he uh, scooped her up into his truck and rescued her from the, the mad crazies, you know. He, he, yeah. Uh, and that was the end of the movie. Um, that was Ed Gwynn. That was our first manager. He, he, he wanted to manage us. So, um, so he, uh, you know, we let him manage us. We didn't have a manager and thought that you need a manager, you know, and, uh, and he was a great guy and, uh, let us record for free at his studio. Actually, some of the earliest tracks we recorded that ended up on the record were in from his studio. Um, and, uh, but, but the thing is, he used the demo tape that we did. He gave it to one of the guys who was kind of a scenester, a real kind of important guy on the scene. Um, gave it to him. And, um, damn, I wish I could say his name because right now it's just like a mental block. Um, it might come to me later. But he gave that tape to him, and that guy gave Carlos Grasso from IRS Records, the creative director for IRS Records, who was the producer of the Cutting Edge show. He gave Carlos, and I guess he was also the curator for the bands, Carlos was. He gave Carlos this tape, and there was one song, one song on that tape, that was a cover of Willie Dixon's I Just Want to Make Love to You. Uh, but there was an intro that was kind of a spoken word thing that I did. And it had this real kind of infectious, you know, drum machine groove and um, and harmonies. And it was it kind of epitomized, epitomized our sound. It was, it was what we were going for. Even though it wasn't a completely an original song, it was like, the Timbuk3 sound to me was defined through that, you know, kind of dirty blues with a kind of uh, synchronized rhythmic guitars and um, um, and big beats, you know. Uh, but Carlos heard that song and just thought, who are these guys, you know? Carlos really loved that track. And... Uh, and based on that one track, you know, he we stayed in his mind. And um, but then one day, uh, Barbara and I were Barbara and I decided we'd put up some posters just on the off chance that we could get some because we knew the t the talent scouts from IRS were going to be in town. They were coming to scout out the bands to play on the show, and so. Uh, so we put up this poster, and it's really strange because the, I remember the poster was a yellow poster, and it had a picture of us, and it had a picture of the boombox. And and for some reason, I, I made the poster. I, I I wrote by the boombox. I wrote as a caption under the boombox or above it or something, as seen on MTV, and you know we were. It was a joke because we were, wouldn't. Have, we didn't have a chance of being on MTV, but 
you know, everybody was talking MTV, MTV, cutting, cutting edge show and all that. So, so there, there we had it. We were, you know, obviously trying to get on the show. Uh, but we went by the, uh, the, the Austin Chronicle offices to go, uh, bring some posters by because I guess which we did occasionally when we were playing gigs we brought some posters to the newspaper we put them up in their office maybe they come to see a show um, and Barbara went in there I was waiting in the car uh, and uh, Barbara ran in there and there was Carlos and so Carlos happened to be there at that moment when Barbara was bringing in the poster and Carlos was like Timbuk three, you guys have that one track that I really love, and and uh, and and he took a poster, and uh, then came to the gig that night, and and immediately after the gig, it was a it was a gig. It was called a place called the Texas Roadhouse um, on Sixth Street, uh, and he came and sat and he came for the whole gig, uh, and afterwards. He not only said he wanted us on the show, but he said he thought he could get us signed to the label. You know, it all it happened that fast. It was just like one gig. Suddenly, he's talking about us getting signed to the label, and he's like, "You know, you might think I'm bullshit, but I have a lot of clout there, and you know, I definitely, you know, think you should do it. I think you're ready, and I think they they they." They'd, they'd sign you. And we were kind of, that was kind of ridiculous. We hadn't even been on the Cutting Edge show, but then but then we were on it, and and um, apparently there was a lot of reaction to us on the show, so, so the record company did want to meet us and talk about us signing us, and that's how it happened. So, so short, you, short story. Yeah, you, get, you get signed... And you're there. So then, when does the future so bright? I gotta wear shades. Start taking off because then that's like you're on MTV all the time. Everybody's listening to you. I mean, it was it was one of those things. It was you guys hustling that got you that break. But what was that like when you started? All of a sudden, you're like, I mean, everybody knew that. Everybody knew that song. It was one of those songs yeah. you just remembered, and we yeah. knew the video, and it was just, it was just a cool song. What was that like when it started taking off for you guys? What was it like? Because all of a sudden you were, you know, it's everywhere. It was strange, you know. The, you know how it got played. It actually got played um, uh, on the radio in Dallas um, off of a cassette that that the that the a promo cassette that the record company had put there with a few tracks on it, uh, like and. Um, and I guess it was if they played it and it got in some call-in response and they started playing it, it kind of became a hit in Dallas before it was even released. And um, but but here's the weird. Okay, to tell you how it felt when we actually when it hit, when it became when they started playing it a lot on MTV. We were playing a little bar in Oklahoma. And and you know we as you know we were vent- by then we were venturing out up beyond Dallas you know we were in some little town in Oklahoma playing this gig and um 
it was this place where they always had the TV on. And, you know, back in Austin, we played the hole in the wall, and, and we were the first band that ever asked them to turn the TV off when we were playing, because we, we by that time, we kind of had a little bit of an audience following there. This was bef even before we got signed and stuff but 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 this other this place in Oklahoma their TV was on and most people were watching the TV they weren't paying any attention to us and um you know we were playing our songs and it really didn't matter what we did and uh but this is the weirdest experience and you'll think I'm making this up I swear um, <laughs> believe me I've heard a lot I know you're not making it up uh, so, you know, um, we are playing Future's So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades. And, you know, maybe they were moving and grooving a little bit, but they weren't, they were talking, they weren't paying any attention to us. And um, more people, like I said, were watching TV. Suddenly, at the same time, and it was MTV they were watching, at the same time we were playing that song, the song comes on MTV. And they're seeing us on the stage. They're seeing MTV on the TV, looking back and forth. And, and it was fucking weird. It was, it was like the, the greatest triumph of all time for any bar musician you know, because that's what I was, you know, I was a 33 year old bar musician, you know, and, you know, in fact, I was 33, I was kind of beyond the age where, where, you know, where you're gets where you get signed by a cool indie label like IRS. Um, but but I was a late bloomer. And I was really uh, still a kid, you know, like, I, you know, um, for me, uh, but I was also a seasoned bar musician. Like, just, I could have been that for the rest of my life, for all I knew. And just that one moment just told me, it's another world now. This, the world is not the place you once thought it was. It is a place where strange coincidences like this happen, you know? So, so after that happened, after that happened, you know, you guys all of a sudden are a really popular band. And now do you feel pressure to follow that up? Cause it's a big hit. And you know, some of your stuff like is more mellow. It's more folky. I would say that had, that was more upbeat. What was it like when you, after that, what did the record company want from you after that big hit? Did they want a bunch of repeats of that? Or did they say, Pat, do what you want? I think, they were they were a complete artist friendly label you know they they let us do what we wanted they were completely you know um uh just wanting to get our best out of us you know like they wanted to get a good album you know for a follow up album um and um they didn't breathe down our backs at all they were kind of confident that we'd deliver something worthwhile and, and they, but at the same time, I think they did, they had gotten the bug because the, they weren't a label that had a lot of top 40 success. 
And back then there was still top 40 radio. I don't know what it is now, but you know, it's like top 40 radio. Um, there was a chart. I, I, you know, is there, is that, does that still exist today? Like there's a million. There's so many different stations. Now there's yeah. Sirius and there's Amazon. Like you don't even know, like, you know, there's so many different stations on Sirius and, and then there's this and there's this. I, I listen to classic rock and I listen to alternative, but it's, it's not like, it's just, it's different now. Like the radio yeah. is just different. You know, it's scrambled eggs. It's like, it, you know, there's, I guess the spot Spotify, you know, list is, is taken over for the billboard, you know, but, um, uh, I heard also on some podcast or something where, uh, where new music only accounts for maybe five to 10% of the music sales. So the music industry right now is basically living off of this legacy of all music. That's all recorded music. This, the, you know, new music isn't doesn't have the stature uh, anymore of 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 classics like the Beatles and all the, this kind of stuff. Well, you know what? I, I want to talk to you about that because even you know, you know like, I want to talk to you because you know we know you know Tim Buck three eventually you want your separate ways, but you've been writing songs forever, and we went over some of the people you wrote with. How have you focused? Like, and how do you think of it now when they say there's no more new music? When you're an artist who writes for people, how does that make you feel? Because you know you, you're seeing the whole shift. I mean, you saw the popularity of videos, then you saw the popularity of different music. How does that make you feel? What What's your view of the industry right now? I think it's fascinating. I think it's it's it's. It's like life. It gets weirder and weirder as time goes on. And is this is this evading the question? And, um, I think you know what happened was with with IRS. They let us do what we wanted. I knew they wanted a hit. I think I felt a little pressure for another hit. But I, I also felt kind of like once once people heard our sound. They'd want, they'd like all our, all our music, you know. So I didn't really, I wasn't worried that. I thought, man, if they just keep, stay behind us, we'll, you know, we'll have more hits and stuff. I wasn't, I wasn't picturing we'd be a one-hit wonder, especially with that song. That wasn't my favorite song at the time. Like, um, so, so it was interesting. You know, I feel fortunate being a one-hit wonder of sorts because, um, you know, uh, at least there's a name for that, you know. There's no name for a two-hit wonder. Right. Yeah. No, I want to talk but, about your career now. Before we came on, you said, you know, you you went through cancer and now you're performing and you're writing again. When you go through something like that, because I went through a thing with my heart, and, it, and I, you know, was in the hospital for eight days, and I'm lucky I didn't have a cardiac arrest walking down the street, and yeah. it, it really changed my look when I, when I, 
got out my view on life. For you as an artist, what was it like when you finally started playing music again? Did you have a new lease on life? Did your did your what you wanted to write about? You said earlier you wanted to write about something you had to say. That did that really kickstart that? Well, you know, I by the time I got sick, I got cancer. You know, I, I, by that time, I had almost before that I had almost decided that I I kind of created my life's work and I'd done. A lot of, you know, because after Timbuk3, I did lots of records after that with different little labels and stuff um, and, and self-released stuff. Um, probably now my, my work post-Timbuk3 is, you know, more, more sizable than, than, than up to that. But, you know, the newer stuff. And, and like, I don't, like, I look at, my past catalog as being um, having a certain um, the only stuff that sounds really horribly dated to me is some of the Timbuk3 stuff but that's just because I was fooling around with stuff I wanted to work on these other these electronic instruments I didn't really know how to use very well and you know, it, it, it's kind of embarrassing and, and, and funny looking back. But so by the time I had released, then I, Timbuk3 was over and I moved to Barcelona and, and lived over there and wrote songs all over the world with different writers and people and Cher and, and uh, you know, <laughs> Peter Frampton and... <clears throat> and uh, um, now, did, did they did they seek you out? How do how like how do how do you meet up? Because I mean, how does Peter Frampton does he sit there and go, "I really like Pat"? How did that happen? Well, well, I, I when I was when Timbuk three was over and I was doing my solo stuff, I, I was playing going to this castle in France where it was like Miles Copeland had a castle there and had invited writers from different publishing companies to come and write with songs that were in his publishing company. And write in a write in a castle, and and uh, collaboratively, and um, and usually it was groups of three that were set up by the powers that be there at the castle, and um, so the, so Cher, Peter Frampton, um, other people, Stuart Copeland, drummer for the Police. He and I wrote a bunch of songs together at the castle, and then afterwards, we were writing songs that he was hoping, you know, would be covered by the, take, you know, played, recorded by the police, you know. Uh, and um, a lot of ridiculous uh, combinations, too, like country people. And, like, I wrote with Roger Miller's son um, in Nashville one time. I, I wrote with Marina Lima in Brazil, um, uh went down to Rio and wrote a bunch of lyric, English lyrics to some of her songs. And currently, actually, the song we did, I did with her that's a duet is my number one most played song on all the formats, it seems. You know, like, uh, kind of, it's, you know, uh, I just did all that stuff, you know, and then I, I released a bunch of my own albums, and um, and I... Stuff I'm really happy with. I met this producer at the castle named John Parrish, who who worked with P.J. Harvey, who I just love. Um, and P, and they 
they PJ Harvey, you know, counts considers John Parrish as being like a mentor, and uh, they've done. Co- I don't know if you're a PJ Harvey fan Somewhere. or not. I, I I I was obsessed with her for a while, and then I got to meet John, and I, I at the castle, and I recognized he was fooling around on some little instrument. It wasn't even a guitar; it was like a little funny little keyboard thing. And I just kind of recognized his sound and his style as something that I had really loved, and ended up we wrote together at the castle, John and I, and then ended up writing together after that, and um. Then he offered to produce some albums of mine, and he produced like three albums of mine. So the, all these albums I'm really proud of, and I had done a lot of that stuff, and I, you know, I just thought maybe I, I have, my life's work is complete, you know, like maybe by the time I got cancer, I wasn't even playing much, you know. I was like, we, we got sidetracked into doing this music motel and, and doing our own version of the castle in this motel, and facilitating a lot of songwriting collaborations um, and, uh, you know, did the group Purgatory Hill, too, with Melanie Jane. She's my partner in the motel. And um, and we had done a couple albums as Purgatory Hill. And there's just like, when I look back, like, I've released so much stuff. And, like, you know, I just figured at one point, you know, I'm moving on to facilitate, facilitating uh, collaboration, collaborative songwriting. I don't even need to, to write any more songs myself. The world has enough songs, and, and I'm, we're just cranking them out at the motel with all these people coming to write songs together. So, <clears throat> you know, um, I just I just was kind of dried up. I, I wouldn't say I wasn't inspired with life. I was just kind of looking for the next thing. And uh, and then got cancer. And then after I came out of that, I realized that maybe maybe I needed music to stay healthy. Maybe it was my my medicine. Maybe it was my therapy. Maybe that's why I got cancer because I didn't have music in my life, or I didn't wasn't playing it. I wasn't you know didn't have my fingers on the guitar, you know. Right. I, there's a feeling, you know, a tactical, fe- a tactile, tactical, yeah, that too, tactile feeling of playing the guitar that, that I guess became part of what kept me healthy and sane, you know, uh, as much as possible. And so, so then I got, went through all this treatment. I couldn't even play. I, I couldn't play guitar. My muscles had all deteriorated to the point where I couldn't even hold down the strings or hold a pick, you know. Um, So I got this little machine that had knobs on it. It's called a drone thing. And, And it's just a, it makes these drones, these drone sounds, and you can construct these waves, you know, and plug it into an amp or whatever. And that's kind of what I did for a while, you know, just played that thing. And uh, because I realized, you know, oops, did that make a loud noise when I hit the mic stand? No. Oh, cool. Um, 
I just realized, you know, music, I needed music, but then, but I really couldn't play the guitar, but um, I just started playing really super simple again and started, you know, building up my muscles a little more. And, um, um, and then by the mid, halfway through 2018, I, my last treatments were at the end of uh, 2017. That was when I was the worst. That was when I, they, the cancer was so bad, they, they had to kind of almost kill me in order to cure me. You know, that they had to, they had to, in order to kill the cancer, they almost had to kill me. So, so I, I was as bad as you can get without dying, you know. But half a year later, I, I had my drone thing and I had my guitar and I was playing it a little more. And, and uh, so I just made this, this album, uh, I I I just I just just started writing and once I started writing um the first song I wrote I decided I wanted that to be the first song on on an album and I wanted to write a whole album. I was just like it was like like uh something just somebody turned on the faucet and and um and I was off and running because I thought well, you know this combination of this drone thing and the guitar. I liked it, and I and I and I was um, I wanted to do. I had a I had had plenty of time to think of what kind of album I wanted to make if I ever made one, because really, truthfully, albums had become my my artwork. You know, um, wasn't just songs. After a while, at, at a certain point, I was thinking in terms of albums, you know, before I stopped doing them, you know, um, each one had to have a kind of a concept or maybe a different instrument out front. And the, the last two that I did before, before this last one, those were with a whole different instrument that I'd never played before called a, uh, a lobo or a purgatory hill harp, which only has four strings and that's what Purgatory Hill is based on the band you know that's the lead instrument and I'm playing it it has weird it has four strings one of them is a bass string and um so I I, I kind of had it with the guitar and I had a completely different instrument I did a couple albums as Purgatory Hill then I got cancer you know um and 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 that was really enough albums with that instrument you know um I had kind of explored enough with that instrument so I was ready to I was really ready to quit but then I came back and I really wanted to start over again and just go back to the guitar basic acoustic guitar I found this old guitar that my brother Bill owned and he, he had died you know many years ago but um, but I was left with this guitar and uh, it was so easy to play it was like a lot easier than my Martin you know, it was a Gibson, an old Gibson, and um, and it was so easy to play. It was a good, you know, beginner's guitar for me to begin again. You know, and um, so yeah, I made I, I, you know, with this drone thing and this guitar, I I just had the urge to do something I'd never done, and that was just like make this album, do all the engineering myself, not going to studio, just make a little studio for myself to do it, and. Um, and, and write the songs in order. And so I wrote the first song and I said, okay, this is gonna, I think this is be a good first song on an album. 
then I thought, how do I want to feel? What, how do I want the next song to feel? And so I, I, I put a different, a, kind of more of a beat on the second song. And, um, and, and, and that felt good. So I had two songs. I'm like, yeah, this, that sounds like a good flow for an album. You know, I'd spent so many years, you know, making an album. And then the big job afterwards is finding what order the songs go in. You know, that's the hard, one of the hardest parts sometimes. It can be fun, but it can be agonizing too because sometimes there's just this one song you want on there, but it doesn't seem to fit anywhere on the album, you know? It could be one of the best songs. In fact, um, the song that IRS signed us for wanted to be, when they signed us, they had one instruction. Yeah, we, wanted, we want you to make an album, but we want this song to be the single on it. And it was a song called uh, I'll Do All Right. It was a song we played on the Cutting Edge show. And they thought that was a single, that was single material. So they told our producer, hey, you know, the producer just wanted to capture our live sound, which is what he did. He helped us perfect it too. But, um, but, uh, but he produced that one song to be special, be a single. Well, it ended up not fitting on the album. When we finally put out the album, it became the flip side of Shades, the single. Um, so anyway, yeah, that whole sequencing an album thing is really can be maddening. Uh, but so I just decided, hey, I, if I if I make this album and make the songs in order, an order that makes sense and make it flow, I won't have to have that job afterwards of seeing what order they go in. So so that's what I did. I did. I did the third one and I did every song felt like a release from the previous song to me when I every that was kind of the rule like every song would be feel kind of like a fresh release from the previous song nothing would sound like it was a continuation of the same um, now now when you keep writing songs and keep coming out with albums, which I'm sure you will, because you have a someone. It's so funny. I, I think of it, it sounds so stupid, but it's like for you, the future's so bright. You have to wear shades. I mean, that sounds trite, but it's true because you had you've had this whole rediscovery. Now, the next albums you work on, will you do it the same way? Will you go song, 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 or will you do it do the songs and then re- put them in order? I mean, do you think you found a new way to write now? Well. Actually, you know, when you when you release a song on um, on these digital formats, they often want the label name. You know, they want they want the name of the label. You can call it self-released, but but I, I decided my label is Chronological Records, so it's kind of, kind of like a a, a a method or a system. Uh, a workflow, you know, and truthfully, I don't know anyone else, none of my friends, and I know so many songwriters, none of them have ever written an album, like one song at a time, beginning to end, you know. Um, Well, I guess authors usually, they write books one chapter at a time, starting at the beginning, usually, maybe there's an outline. I didn't have an outline for the album, but, um, you know, I don't know that I want to... My next album is not going to be chronologically written because I already have I have like 16 songs that I've been playing 
as a set and they're from all over they're they're new songs that i've never recorded uh, mixed in with old songs that i've never recorded finger picking the acoustic guitar you know there's songs that i never feel i really got a good recording of with a band and and so all these songs are just finger picking the guitar um and that's that's and it's not chronological but i i want to encourage everyone else to do it at least once you know because People should have that experience because I think a songwriter, it would be good for a songwriter to have that experience of writing an album that way. Um, I love, you know, it was hard work, but it was like seven weeks, but, but it was recorded by the time the songs were written. It was being recorded and written at the same time, basically. You know, I wasn't just writing a song and the, and recording it, and then writing another song, then recording it. I was recording it while I was writing the songs. So if I came up with a riff, I'd record that part. And if I came up with a verse, I'd record the verse. And then I'd maybe write another. I'd write another verse and tag and write, and add that to the recording. Now it sounds like these songs are really flowing, like I'm just playing them. But actually, a lot of them are were were recorded and written one verse at a time, and I would r- record them while I was writing them. So, you know, because I'm good at I'm good at digital editing. I, I I use Pro Tools, and I, I you know we've been doing that since the '80s, and I've since beta version of Pro of Sound Tools, and uh, back then before it was Pro Tools. Um, so I'm really good with cut and paste, sample and loop, and, and, and building things that way. So I, was, I didn't have to play a song all the way through. That's the thing. I couldn't play a song all the way through when I made that album. I could only play a little at a time. And so, um, yeah, but I could make it sound like it was played all the way through. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm divulging that secret, but it's not a secret. I'm kind of proud of it or happy with it because it was on one on on one hand, it was a big exercise in cheating. You know, um, it sounds like a very organic. It's it is the most organic sounding record I ever made, um, but it was just <laughs> digitally printed. You know how those are, you know, digital prints, you right. know, like they start from here, they go, they, they make, you know, rather than putting boards up this way, you know, like, and, and, and then putting cross boards and stuff, you know, making a frame and then filling in the frame. No, digital printing, bottom up, and it's all, it's all done, you know, it's, and, and it's a horse, you know, building a horse from the bottom up. That's kind of like what this is. So, yeah. Well, that's awesome, Pat. You know what? Um, where can people where can people find all your music? I know your website, and uh, but where, I really love Bandcamp. I really love Bandcamp. The, you know, a friend of mine who was a huge activist, anti-streaming activist. In fact, you know, uh, at one point, um, you know, he he went almost to war with the streaming platforms online uh, and he lost, you know, but, uh, but he was very noble in his attempts to make sure that the artists were, 
were considered in the equation, you know. And Bandcamp is a super artist-friendly streaming platform. Um, And it's a store. It's like a music store, too. And um, it's like a, it's a really nice, cool little world. I don't know if you've been there, um, Bandcamp, bandcamp bandcamp.com. I'll check it out. And, you know, even like when you register your songs to go on all the streaming platforms through like a, 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 a distro kid, distribution, digital distribution, um, Bandcamp doesn't, doesn't work with the stream, the distribution networks. They are artist direct or label direct. You don't, you can't go through CD baby or distro kid and get your stuff on Bandcamp. They need a, like a direct relationship and you put up your stuff on your own page. You have your own kind of like your own little website on Bandcamp, and, um, and you can put the lyrics on there. You can put videos on there. You can put the songs, uh, endless liner notes, um, everything you put, can put it up there. And also then you can, um, you can share your songs from their albums or songs and, um, on other platforms, you know, Facebook or whatever. Well, that's um, awesome, Pat. I want to thank you, man. This is good. I, you know, you have great stories. You know, your career, your career has been a very long career. And it's great, though, that after you thought you were towards the end of it, something awful happened to you. But now you're out making music again. And that, that's awesome because people want to hear music and, and you're original. And it must make you feel good inside. It re- it really does, uh, you know. It's kind of it is kind of like a kind of reincarnation of sorts because, like I I had felt like, and many of my friends will tell you, I would, I think everybody kind of knew that I'd kind of decided I'd I'd done enough. I'd had enough, you know. And I I told Mel and Jane one day, kind of melancholy, I said. Uh, you know, the only thing I wish I'd done was make one good album, one great album. I, you know, I just really wish I, and I don't think I've made a great album. She said, you've made lots of great albums. And I'm like, no, no, I, I, I mean an album, a real album, you know, like not just a bunch of songs. And, um, and you know, this, this Ragged Jagged Way Back Home project ended up being that, album to me because I actually don't cringe when I hear anything on there it's, it seems perfect to me when I hear it you know and and I have to stop myself or I'll listen to it too much like yeah because I'm like when I'm playing music now I'm like I'm my own engineer so I'm always assessing my engineering skills listening to my stuff not just my performing or whatever but I'm like what makes this song sound that good? What is it, in, you know, in, in, in it? And I'm listening for that. But, you know, like, I don't... That, if that album's the last one that's worth a shit that I ever do, um, I'll be satisfied, you know, because that kind of... That one's just kind of like... That's a, that's a good album. I'm glad I lived long enough to make my last album, you know? That's awesome, man. So people... Please go check out Pat's music. It's uh, Pat McDonald's M A C 
D-O-N-A-L-D, and the A is bigger, <laughs> so you spell it right, because most you people would probably call him McDonald, but it's MacDonald, like my friend Joe Mackerlane. It wasn't Mac or Merkerlane, it was Mackerlane. So go check out Pat's music. Uh, go to, like the fish, mackerel, you exactly. wouldn't say Go, go to go to Bandcamp. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find uh, 893 episodes up there. Um, you can uh, email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.